Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to continue our reflections into this Lenten season, this fourth Sunday of Lent, where we have the opportunity to continue our treatment of the Gospel of John. We now, for a second consecutive week, will reflect into the Gospel of John and maybe the most iconic gospel passage in the whole New Testament, huh? That great verse, for God so loved the world. So we'll not only talk about that verse, but the context to which it comes to us, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. But before we go there, I thought I would first just briefly respond to a question. This past week, I was asked, you know, what's the significance of the passage that comes to us from 2 Timothy 3.16, Joe, it certainly seems significant. And that passage is, all Scripture is inspired by God. And yes, that is a very important verse. Certainly, it's a verse we lean into when you start talking about the inspiration of Scripture, but also the inerrancy of Scripture. So what does the Church mean uh, when she affirms the words of St. Paul, all Scripture is inspired by God? Well, First of all, <laughs> that it is actually inspired by God. You know, the word translates God breathed. So it follows that God breathed forth his word in the scriptures as you and I, my dear friends, breathe forth air when we speak. This means that God is the primary author of the Bible. Huh? He certainly employed human authors in this task as well. But he did not merely assist them while they wrote or subsequently approve what they had written. No, God, the Holy Spirit, is the principal author of Scripture, while the human writers are the instrumental authors, if you will. And yes, we could rightfully say that, you know, these human authors freely wrote everything and only those things that God wanted, the Word of God in the very words of God. Huh? This miracle of dual authorship extends to the whole of sacred scripture and to every one of its parts. That's the beauty. So that whatever the human authors affirm, God likewise affirms through their words. My dear friends, just as Jesus Christ is fully human and divine, so is the word of God fully human and divine, right? We receive the word of God in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and we consume the Word of God, chewing and gnawing on the significance of its words as God breathes His very life and love into those words. So yes, very important verse there. Now, with that, uh, once again, my dear friends, I'm flying solo here this, this evening, so if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, observations, please do not hesitate to email. I love to receive your emails, j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website, joeholcraft.org. Just go to the contact link there and send your email on the way. Okay, with that, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. Mm. Rich, rich passages. As you can get a sense already, we are going to be talking the stuff of the Lenten themes, huh? God's love. God's love. Let us go back to verse 14. I want to touch upon this because this really gets us going. Verse 14 reads, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... You have heard me talk, my dear friends, ad nauseum about the importance of understanding the unity of the two Testaments, the old and new, 46 old, 27 new, 73 chapters. You start with the old because no one reads starting in the middle of a book. You start in the middle of of sacred scripture, you're starting in chapter 47. No, you start in chapter one, the book of Genesis. Right? So you always have to read the old in light of the new, the new in light of the old. And you really understand the new in light of the old. And why do I bring this up? Well, here you have John referencing who? Moses. A reference to the episode in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. And we won't go back and read it now. But in there you find Moses hoisting a bronze serpent upon a pole as a remedy for faithless Israel. Now, although God punished them with poisonous serpents, he promised to save everyone who looked to the bronze serpent in search of his mercy. What's the catch here? Jesus sees this relic as an image of his own crucifixion and the healing it will bring to a rebellious world. And for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Hmm? My dear friends, in search of his mercy. What does that mean to say? We've been talking a lot about mercy. Again, we've been talking a lot about love because as mercy is the chief attribute of God, as John Paul II called it, it is love's second name because God is love. So yes, by searching for his mercy, we seek out his love. So what is mercy? Before we get too far ahead of ourselves so that we are all on the same page, let us clearly define what mercy is. John Paul II has a great quote for us. He says, The Bible, tradition, and the whole faith life of the people of God provide unique proof that mercy is the greatest of the attributes and perfections of God. Now we have two words in the Old Testament that speak to mercy beautifully. The first is hased. Hased is defined as that steadfast love, a blood bond of love, covenant love. Again, I am yours and you are mine. He and me and I and him. That love that speaks to relationship. 
Love defined not by the exchange of things, but again, persons. So for this reason, someone who has the attribute of this chesed in the Hebrew is someone you can always count on, someone who never lets you down, as noted by many Old Testament scholars. This love is what we define as a dependable love, a holy love, a love that rescues. And I I dare say, my friends, a love that we want to be around, right? Because essentially, we are to see chesed as that which contains the meaning of faithfulness to oneself, to one's own promises, and certainly commitment to others. Amen to that. How about that second term for God's mercy that we find in the Old Testament? The Hebrew word is rahamim. This word is defined as tenderness, compassionate love. This can be best understood as a love that springs forth from the innermost place of God's being. In point of fact, the root word to rahamim is a word that means the abdominal region. (laughs) Hence, why we speak of this love as God's tenderness, God's gentle touch. The root also speaks to womb of God. Powerful. So, someone who has this mercy, this kind of mercy, rahmim, is someone who feels for your plight and is moved with compassion to help you. We often see these two words together because they orchestrate the symphony of that chief attribute of God, mercy. Consequently, (laughs) the Latin base for the word mercy, misericorde, what does that translate? Sorrowful at heart. This understanding of mercy is the glove ball fit to the Old Testament vision of mercy because it is the movement of the heart that is shaken at the sight of another's plight and moves to do something about it, going out of itself and toward the other. It is the act of love of God that wants to fill every void and darkness in the human heart with life and joy. St. Thomas Aquinas says, Mercy is the compassion in our hearts for another person's misery, a compassion which drives us to do what we can do to help him. Now, what's important for us to understand here is that we cannot fulfill this universal vocation of compassionate mercy if we are not first drinking from the font of mercy ourselves. Remember what I have said about love, and I've really been reinforcing it over the past three weeks, that God's love is total and unconditional. It is total in this sense. Enough is never enough until the last drop. Right? The question has been posed... Could one drop of Christ's blood save the world? Sure. God can do whatever he wants to do. But if the human has five and a half to six quarts of human blood to give, then Jesus Christ has five and a half to six quarts of human blood to give. And again, enough is never enough until the last drop. So where should we find ourselves? At the foot of the cross, drinking that last drop. So we might learn the language of what it means to be totally selfless, other-centered, willing to do anything and everything at all costs to serve those who are most in need. This is what Christ teaches us on the cross. And again, this love is unchanging because there isn't anything so great or anything so tragic that we can do that would actually have God loving us any more or any less. Because God's love is absolute, and this we rejoice in. 
And I know this might be difficult for some of us. We hear that verse, for God so loved the world, and we almost get fixated on the romantic nature of how we think about love. We fall in love and out of love. At one moment, we are totally satisfied in our encounters with love, and at the next, totally dissatisfied, contented, discontented. Why? Well, because we are fickle. We are vested with the flesh. It is called human nature. So God gives us the model from which not only to follow and imitate, but to actually drink from, that we might learn this language of selflessness, this language of mercy, because you cannot give what you do not have. And this is why it is so important, as we speak about this, to recognize the importance of going to the sacrament of confession, where, again, we go to Jesus with our worst, and Jesus comes to us with his best. And he reminds us that we are better than our worst. And in doing so, he rekindles the fire and the flame that is burning within us, and he sends us forth. Amen. That being said, there's one last truth on mercy that I believe to be of the utmost importance, and that is the relationship between mercy and justice. And for us to understand this, we have to return to the Beatitudes and certainly the Beatitude on mercy. And in so doing, consider along with it, again, this virtue of justice. The fifth Beatitude reads what? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, as St. Augustine reminds us, there is a sequential logic to the Beatitudes. If we are to understand each Beatitude in its fullest sense, we must consider its preceding Beatitude. In this case, the Beatitude on justice. How does that read? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. So for this reason, we consider mercy in light of justice. Now, the Greek word for justice conveys what? But a sense of of right direction with one another in God. It speaks to the upright, to the holy. According to this beatitude, to hunger and thirst for justice is to be dissatisfied with anything less than being in right relationship with God. So our general understanding of justice as giving each their due is fulfilled, my friends, when we embark upon the journey of doing whatever is necessary to put man in right relationship between creator and creature, father and child. If we are to love our neighbors as we would want to be loved, then we ought to see what? How, as Aquinas puts it, mercy fulfills justice. In many ways, this is what lies behind the golden rule, huh? I don't think we'll be able to appreciate mercy unless we put it into a contemporary understanding of justice. In this context, I love what the moral theologian and Professor Donald DeMarco says, he says, justice is rational and measured. Mercy is immeasurable. Justice can be commanded. Mercy must be freely given. There are halls for justice. There are hearts for mercy. Justice is the embodiment of the law. Mercy transcends the law. In this context, we ought to appreciate what shines forth is the gift-like quality that is mercy never undermining its counterpart in justice, but always transcending it. This is what we see in the towering symbol of Christianity in the corpus on the cross. Mercy as gift and task 
par excellence. Okay, now returning to this passage, John 3, 16. He gave his only begotten son. What are we made to see here? Alongside of everything we just talked about, that the earthly mission of Jesus is part of the heavenly plan of the Father who displays the depth of this love we've been talking about through the aforementioned sacrifice of His Son. This language of eternal life. An expression, my friends, that refers both to the divine quality of the new life in Christ we receive, just not in baptism where we are incorporated into the very life of God, but also in the sacraments of, of confession and, of course, the Eucharist. We receive this gift already on earth in the hope that we will possess it irrevocably in heaven. And my friends, this is our cause for rejoicing, is it not? How about this verse 18? He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me speak here for a second to the importance of belief. I'm thinking here of the blind man. You know, the blind man has his first encounter with our Lord. And what does he call him? Man. (laughs) He stays with our Lord for a little while, and now he identifies this man as something greater than an ordinary man. No, now he's a prophet. Okay, and he remains with him longer. And now, who is he? He is Lord. He's the Messiah. What is going on in this encounter between Jesus and the blind man? The same thing we see between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, a kind of progression in Revelation, is that when we stay with Christ, when we abide in Christ, our understanding of God expands The greatness of who he is expands, and as it expands, it opens up our heart that we might begin to understand the meaning of our lives, earth in light of heaven, our mission in light of its destiny. So this whole idea of belief should be about encounter, because we pray that our belief might increase, and indeed, my friends, it will. So, the language of, of condemnation. You know, unbelief, my friends, is a form of rebellion that puts offenders outside the safety net of covenant life. To reject the Son of God is to reject the light of faith in preference to spiritual darkness, death, and disinheritance. This is what's going on in this verse. We have to confront the reality of sin, huh? You know, we've talked about this a little bit before. One of the things often overlooked in the Christian journey is the need for God's mercy. Why? Well, who needs mercy if we're not doing anything wrong? We have this incredible capacity to reduce the objective reality of sin in our lives. And what does the beloved evangelist remind us? That we must confront the reality of sin. What does he say in his first epistle? Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Mm. You know, I know of alcoholics that have blamed their father's addiction for their own alcoholic addiction. And certainly what the father, what their father has tragically done has probably set them up for failure. 
but it is only when an alcoholic admits that he is an alcoholic that he takes the first step towards rehab, right? Likewise, it is when we stop pointing the finger at others and take responsibility for our transgression that we begin to change for the better. How can we not help but think of that great response of G.K. Chesterton when he was asked what's wrong with the world? What did he say? I am. We have to recognize the bad news of sin if we're going to recognize the good news of salvation, right? But what is sin? Sin is disobedience. The giving in to our selfish appetite, that hedonistic, pleasure-seeking appetite. At its center, sin can be defined as no more than breaking our Father's heart. One of the Greek words for sin is amartia, which literally translates missing the mark, as in archery competition. This conveys the Old Testament understanding of law, which means to hit the mark, as in hitting bullseye. My dear friends, if we are to hit bullseye, God's mercy, we must first confront the reality of what? Missing the mark. In doing so, we recognize the need for God's healing touch that ultimately restores us to proper sonship in Him. I love that great line that comes to us from Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He once remarked that the sun will shine no matter what, so don't put down the blinds. In other words, we are not to live in the entrapment of fear that blots out the love of God from working in our life, but open our hearts that God's light would invade our soul and at once restore that cry of sonship, Abba, Father. God's mercy is so great, so tender. Our weakness, my dear friends, attracts God's mercy. God is at his best when we are at our worst. Because if mercy is the chief attribute of God, that attribute is shining when it is restoring us. This is why the prodigal son is so important to understanding today's passage, right? That parable, not just about the father or just about the son, but about all three. There's a multi-layered wisdom that lies behind the parable of the prodigal son. And yes, it does begin with the father in light of what I was just talking about. Why? Because he's running to his son. He's exercising that mercy. The son's weakness draws him. And man, when Christ was sharing this parable, how scandalous that would have been. I mean, it would have been scandalous for the son to request his inheritance while his father was still alive, let alone squander it. And for this reason, the actions of the father to take the first step would have been highly inappropriate, right? And yet this is exactly what the father does. He runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. In this story, the father, which is to some extent an obvious prototype to God the father, desires what? but mercy and reconciliation, which reveals how mercy is to reach beyond the boundary lines of societal norms, because mercy always says, I love. Of course, we have the eldest son, and in the eldest son, we have the portrait of envy and entitlement. He puts expectation at the heart of what he does, which, as I have said, often ultimately leads to disappointment and sadly resentment. He succumbs, my friends, to the, to the disease of rights and privileges. And what does this lead to? 
selfishness. And as this story reveals, and this always strikes me, no longer seeing his brother as his brother. I mean, listen to the words. When I think Luke 9.30, when he's talking to his father and he says, this son of yours, you know, my wife and I joke around when our children do something wrong, we say, this daughter of yours or this son of yours. No, here the elder brother meant it, this son of yours. He really meant it. A man without gratitude is a man without the disposition to forgive. And this is why the eldest son stands as that figure who expects, representing the popular sentiment, I deserve. And of course, the prodigal son. And the youngest son, we have the full scope of sin, repentance, and conversion. Certainly, we can all identify with this cycle. At different points in our life, we have given in to the desires of the flesh and wanted more than we should have. And ultimately, this has left us with a disproportionate understanding of who we are and where we are going. And hopefully, like the son, led us to that state of contrition and resolve to change. This younger son stands as that figure who repents, representing the sentiment of a contrite heart saying, I sin. So here you have the father, I love, the eldest son, I deserve, and the younger son, I sin. Where are we in this triptych, if you will? That's between you and God. But as I reflect upon the parable of the prodigal son this evening, especially in light of these verses, we do focus in on the greatness of God's love and how it is, yes, unconditional, unmeasured, constantly wanting to give more. Remember what the word mystery means, mysterion, inexhaustible reality. God is constantly wanting to give. Desire must match desire. Our want and desire to receive God's love must match God's want and his desire to give his love. This is the wonder and the beauty of our faith. And lastly, my friends, a closing reflection on the importance of friendship. Because certainly, as he loves us, he calls us into this eternal friendship that he himself shares in, huh? Because the Trinity is love given, love received, love shared. This eternal communion of friendship. It's later in the Gospel of John where Christ says to his, to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What is friendship? Friendship ultimately is stronger than kinship itself. Why? Kinship consists in having the same blood. Friendship consists in having the same tastes, ideals, and interests, and moves towards that all-important agape, that which is sacrifice. Friendship is born of trust, that fact that I can confide in you. Jesus says that he calls us friends because everything he knows of his heavenly Father, he has made known to us. He has confided to us. So brothers and sisters, let us call Jesus Christ our friend and let this friendship draw us deeper into the mystery of the greatness of God's love, this perfect eternal exchange of love and mercy, and learn from it that we might embody it and share it with others. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.